You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome. I'm Diane Brady. While the future may be looking somewhat brighter as we emerge from the pandemic, it does not look a lot more predictable. So how does an organization prepare for that? How do you as a leader even organize for that? Joining me to discuss this are Chris Gagnon, a senior partner in Austin, who's part of McKinsey's global organization practice. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Diane. It's great to be here. And also Elizabeth McGatt, an associate partner in Boston who advises clients across multiple sectors on organizational transformation. Hi, Liz. Hi, Diane. Happy to be here today. Chris, we talk about organizing for the future, which is a subject you've both been looking at quite a bit lately. Can you tell me a little more about what we mean by that? Sure, I'd love to. And, and to do it, we'll, we'll take a little spin back in history. The, the most important thing McKinsey's ever written on organization um, was the 7S framework. And the article that first introduced the 7S framework to the world was called Structure is Not Organization. And it had a wonderful image of, uh, I believe, the Magritte painting of a pipe that said, this is not a pipe. And the point of Tom Peters and Bob Waterman was that an org chart is a very, very incomplete description of how an organization works. An organization is a system. And they had at the time, uh, you know, seven things that each started with an S. Uh, that, by the way, is, remains a useful way to describe organizations. But a lot has changed since the 1970s. We're seeing uh, increasing experimentation and boldness in organizational models across the elements of the system. So we, we decided to take a new look at what are the, the elements of a, of a system beyond its structure today. So, Liz, how much of this research you've done is related to COVID-19 versus just the way the world's going? A lot of this research we began well before COVID-19, but what we have seen is that COVID has merely accelerated changes that were already underway. So for example, people were already seeking greater flexibility in their work. Automation and new technologies were already changing the way we worked and the skills we needed. Uh, We were stressed and overwhelmed to start with, and we were already experiencing meaningfully different shifts in millennials and Gen Zers. What we're seeing is four macro trends that really inform how organizations have to evolve differently. And they're around increasing connectivity, uh, which is really undermining traditional power structures. And certainly COVID forced a 100% operating model environment and proved that remote and hybrid operating models could increase productivity and indeed could work better than anyone had ever anticipated. Uh, Meanwhile, you have lower transaction costs, enabling people to collaborate better outside large organizations than, than within them. Unprecedented automation. And in fact, COVID really demonstrated that every business can now be a technology business. Right. And then finally, societal expectation shifts where the role of business and society is changing as a new generation rises. And in fact, that new generation is also changing it. They're expecting to be promoted more quickly, to find purpose and meaning in their work, are willing to uh, vote with their feet and shift organizations. Yeah, Liz, I think that's spot on. You know, what COVID did is uh, it accelerated experimentation. But the underlying dynamic before COVID, I think, is the important one, which is, you know, 30 years ago, 
if you looked around for bold org experiments, you know, self-organizing teams or open book management or whatever it was, you saw them in small companies. Today, you'll find them more often in the biggest winners in the world. You know, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Netflix, the Bridgewater Capitals, the hires. And uh, it's really important to remember that we're in a winner-take-all world. You know, it used to be that being, you know, kind of an average or above average performer in most industries meant you got to make good money. Uh, Today, all the returns uh, accrue to the top 20% or so of companies. If they're inventing a better way uh, and you want to be in that winner's group, this is the question that's got to be tackled. Can you give me some sense as to what's important? If I'm a company that isn't Amazon or Google, can I even compete? Of course you can. Almost all of the things that we discuss as keys or imperatives can be enabled by technology, but they're designed to help people perform. At the heart of this thinking is humanism, not just technology. What we're seeing is the organizations that get this right and are really experimenting are innovating boldly in how they set up people to be successful and, by the way, feel successful, empowered, uh, et cetera, in their work and as part of the broader purpose. But then in parallel, how do you think about technology and automation facilitating that and amplifying it. So it's very much two sides of the same coin. And we see, you know, certainly many technology companies doing very, very well. But part of why they're doing well is because the way of, of the way they are deploying and organizing and, and delighting and inspiring the people in their organizations. Let's get into what we can learn from some of these, whether they're next generation companies or companies that have just pivoted in this environment. The first imperative is one that that I have heard a lot about, which seems logical, but yet difficult to do, which is to take a stance on purpose. Who does that well and how? I I might actually pull us back one minute Uh before we dive into purpose, because we actually thought about the imperatives in three buckets or categories. And I might think about addressing the the first three as a full set of identity imperatives. And purpose is certainly at the core of that, right? It guides our decisions from the boardroom to the front line. Um, We see over 80% of employees reporting it as important to have a purpose, but less than half report their company's purpose actually driving impact. So the essence of why we exist is really, really important. And increasingly, we're seeing that organizations need to take a resonant stance on purpose. In addition to the why, uh, is is a bit of of the what and the how. You know, we think about how is value created? How is an organization's mission advanced? And really getting clear on how you set up your organization uh, around the stuff you need to be really good at in a differentiated way so that your your focused value agenda really mobilizes resources to focus on what matters with the capabilities and the talent required at the resource levels required to actually be successful and outperform the competition. So value and getting clear on your value agenda is also a really key piece of this. And then finally, culture. How do you run the place? What is the secret sauce? And certainly every organization has a culture. What we are seeing is that many of the leading organizations have a culture that's distinctly different. And, and by the way, it's not, it's not for everyone, but it has, it has distinctive elements that are going to draw the kind of talent and capabilities they need to advance what they're trying to do. On purpose, we heard very, very different things from uh, leaders. There are some leaders 
who believe that they have a, a personal social mission and it, it becomes that of the organization and it's you know really parallel to shareholder value. That's actually a pretty small group. There's another group, though, that says, boy, if all we stand for is uh, creating shareholder value, we won't get our fair share of talent. So we need to be more explicit about what our objective functions are across those. I find value, uh, personally for me, one of the most fascinating things here. One of the great mysteries of the past 50 years has been uh, the success of private equity. And in fact, private equity you know, regularly buys and sells companies back to and from the, the public markets and outperforms with them. And you try to figure out why all the rationales break down. You know, they, they don't necessarily invest more. They don't necessarily get executives with better resumes. The only thing that holds up is they are crystal clear about their value creation plan. Yeah, I don't want to say something as high-minded as strategy. I want to be mathematical. You know, we bought a company for $2 billion. We're going to make it worth $5 billion. And here's where the $3 billion is going to come from. And it's it's a list of things, you know, 10 or 12 long that human beings can understand. And boy, if you want human beings to perform, one of the best things you can do is be clear with them about what you're trying to accomplish. And then they can fill in how they do their jobs to make that happen in the best way. Are the best companies really in some ways evolving on that front with regard to purpose, value? No, this is about conscious aspiration. Um, You know, look at the Amazon leadership model. It does not look like something that's posted on the wall of, of a traditional corporation. Look at the wonderful document that many, many people will have seen online about uh, Netflix's culture and how they try to treat each other. Read Ray Dalio's book about principles. Now, you can agree or disagree with, with any of those. In fact, I would argue they're not worth much unless you could agree or disagree violently with them. But those are people having real conscious decisions about who they want to be and how they want to act. And just like in our individual lives, I would submit that's a really good thing to do. I, I would probably go one step further, Chris, right? It's not just enough to make it feel good. But if, in fact, it doesn't inform decisions and hard decisions at an organizational level, it's probably not a strong enough purpose and people are going to walk away because it's not going to resonate for them. So as one example, you think about sort of predictable dilemmas or hard trade-offs that organizations need to make and and moments when that purpose can, can inform it. So for example, CVS, they exited the tobacco business because they are a health company. The tobacco business is a big business, right? They had to say no to a pretty meaningful stream uh, of revenue and business and, and consumers there, but it was not consistent with their purpose. It wasn't consistent with their identity. And so they made a decision, right? And now people look at that and they say, okay, I actually know that CVS is literally putting its money where its mouth is. So examples like that, not only is it about identity, not only is it about an individual feeling like their own purpose is resonant with that of the organizations, but we actually see the company walking the talk and, and making hard decisions informed by and guided by the purpose. One of the things that's always fascinated me is culture. Every CEO talks about culture and the importance of it, and yet it is so, A, hard to measure, and B, not really something that can be a top-down initiative. What do you see the top quartile of companies or cultures doing differently? 
Wow. I'm going to answer that by disagreeing with almost everything you just said in the question. That's why you get the big bucks. (laughs) This is going to be fun. Um, Let me tell a story to lead into it, which is um, I do something with audiences all the time, which is I put up a slide with uh, some of the the best and most well-known business books of the last 10 years. So Good to Greats up there and the Toyota Way and Execution by Larry Bossidy. And I asked the audience, who's right? What do we think good management is? Because that seems like an interesting question, right? What do they say? Well, interestingly, they say lots of things. Sometimes we say there's no right or wrong answers. Here, there's actually right or wrong answers. We've been measuring cultures with the Organizational Health Index for 15 years now. And we know that the companies that score in the top quartile of OHI have, you know, two and a half or three times the performance of those in the median. And furthermore, what we know is that to score in the top quartile, you have to have a culture that stands for something. So what doesn't work is reading a little bit of every one of those books and putting them together, which is what so many companies do. They've had executives pass through, they've read books, they've started initiatives, they've probably been influenced by consultants, and you have a management system which is mush. The best companies have a distinct philosophy. At Toyota, the Toyota way is around continuous improvement. That's not the way Apple runs themselves. Right. And by the way, they're in really competing markets. Apple's a market shaper. They think about innovation and market data. The way those two companies spend their time is completely different. So what I often say is the success of of Hallmark Cultures is they, they read one of these groups of books that hung together with a consistent philosophy and they really really stuck with it. A little bit of best practice here, a little bit of best practice there will get you killed. So it is the personality and the basically set from the top. Yeah, yeah, I I think this is measurable. um, And if not set from the top, certainly can be led from the top. People need to get it in the core of who they are. That's why we'll talk about talent assessment being so important. It's not enough to have good people. You need people who fit. But if I was to lay out the requirements for a great leader, having a clear cultural aspiration and a plan to drive it through the organization would be really near the top of my list. That's a good point. Liz, do you want to add to that? I, I would love to add to the concept of mush because I think it's, I think it's a good one or or maybe a bad one, right? So mm-hmm. so you think about you know what makes a culture compelling? A couple of distinctive, different, noticeable practices, right? And and McKinsey's a great example, right? McKinsey's culture isn't for everyone, but for the people who are here and who stay here, there's a bunch of very consistent cultural practices that work and that make it work for teams to come together having never met each other and be gelling within a day, right? Similarly, if you think about Bridgewater, they're very known for radical transparency, right? You've, you, you put people in the middle of a circle and you have just super transparent performance reviews. This would make many people's skin crawl, right? But for the people who are there, they learn from it. 
They thrive on it. And it's a key piece of what allows them to do their business well. Amazon's got these, these leadership principles, which by the way, I see many others sort of adopting from, right? Whether it's customer obsession, whether it's having backbone, whether it's disagreeing and committing. Disagree and commit, for example, is something that I have have a couple of clients who have absorbed for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's really distinctive and a simple practice like that really changes how the business functions. It changes how decisions get made, changes how the place gets run. None of these things is mush, right? They are sharp practices. People notice them. And by the way, it's also one of the things that allows you to get the talent you need because top talent likely isn't going to go to a place with you know, a middle of the road culture that doesn't really stand for anything and isn't exciting. Well, it's it's fascinating. One of the challenges with culture or values has been the sense that it hasn't been inclusive, for example, of all stakeholders. Cultural fit can sometimes be shorthand for people like me. And so when we think about the importance of diversity, inclusion, broader stakeholders, Within a culture, can you accommodate that? The cultures you talk about, for example, I mean, very distinct cultures. How do we kind of move to where the world's going, which is we have to basically answer to more masters? Chris? Yeah, I, I would argue we not only can, um, but we have to. Let me, let me tell you why. The first argument for diversity and equity and inclusion is is just a human argument. It, it is the right thing to do. Sometimes I feel like that should be enough. If, if we don't stand for being fair to, to human beings, I, I don't know what to stand for. But let me proceed to the, the, the case, which is cultures which are cohesive in the way you described we all look alike, we all think alike, we all have the same accent, do better, actually, in certain circumstances. They do better as long as the world is really stable and the challenge is very stable. That's not the case for almost any company in the world. So to manage change, you need diversity of perspective and style. Now, that diversity of perspective and, and style has to all fit within a, uh, a management system, and people will select those. I don't think the way they select them will sort out on race, creed, color, gender, or sexual preference. Some people will fit at Bridgewater, and some people will fit at Amazon, and some people won't. But that's a selection process about human beings, not about surface characteristics. What does it mean to be radically flat? Because that is also one of the imperatives, which I know gets into more of the kind of operational aspects of being future ready. Talk a bit about that. Before I do that, let me go back and share one more thought on the diversity Uh piece. So there's lots of good arguments for just how much talent is lost when you don't take a full spectrum perspective. But there's also research around how diversity can actually really enhance decision-making, right? Internal decisions, external decisions. On the structure piece, so so this is one that we actually struggled with. We saw so many different examples of how organizations were behaving. So on the one hand, and we see this quite a bit in COVID, you have organizations dissolving into networks of teams or agile teams, right? So as COVID unfolded, instead of people doing their normal day job, people would show up in a morning huddle and figure out what was the job to be done that day or that week. You figured out who 
needed to be deployed against it. And you those people went off and focused on that. And when they were done, they came back. Mm-hmm. So you have teams of teams with the right resources and you have a fair bit of fluidity in the organizational structure and much more focus on the mission and the outcomes. On the other end, we also see organizations radically getting flatter. And so instead of having typical spans of five to eight to 10 to 12, you see spans as big as 30 and even higher because of the way that organizations are reconceiving of management. And for those who don't know, can you just define what we mean by spans? Sure. So in a typical organization, you you might have a manager who has five direct reports or eight direct reports, or if she's managing a customer service center, she might have 10, 15, 20 direct reports on her team, right? You might see similar uh, spans in, in nursing units, for example. Rarely, though, did we see spans of larger than 15 or so. Mm-hmm. And because there are human limits to how much time you can actually spend um, helping teams figure out what they need to be doing. Um, so here we see, you know, in a number of agile organizations, there's a European nursing organization, for example, that has spans of up, up towards 50. And people are just very clear on what they need to do, and they go and do it. And when you think about how an organization is set up, an executive might reach reflexively for an org chart. But that doesn't actually describe what people are doing. And more and more, as project work becomes more important, there are a whole bunch of other dynamics that actually describe the work people are doing and how they're spending their time. So what we're seeing is just many, many other mechanisms like decision making, like having a clear value agenda, like culture, um, that are that are really informing how work is happening and hierarchy takes a backseat. It doesn't disappear at all. Humans like hierarchy but it does become less of the, this is the command and control, top-down, very simple way we draw the organization. I've, I've heard helix organization, matrix, those are terms I've certainly heard uh, and seen around McKinsey. Is that best in practice? McKinsey actually you know, helped a lot of clients invent the matrix. It was enormously powerful for a long time because it lets you operate on more than one BU dimension at once. Today, even two is not enough. So I've got bad news for anybody listening to this podcast. You are stuck with business units, functions, geographies, customer segments, and initiatives. There's no structural way out of it. There is no magic right answer. You pick the ones you want to emphasize at any moment in time. You try to do that with some sense, but you're still stuck managing across all those dimensions. The world dictates it. And Chris, if we if we take the human lens, it is very hard for anyone to conceive of more than about three dimensions. So if you think about four, five, six dimensions, all of a sudden, <laughs> you are really stuck in a pickle because it's very hard to figure out what to do and who to answer to. Right. So what, what do we need? We need ways for people to deploy flexibly in team-based ways to tackle things. We need ways to make decisions. And uh, on the balance of making decisions with super accuracy or speed, I'll tell you the balance is moving towards speed and, and then getting the right people uh, involved. Structurally, though, to Liz's point, we had a huge set of learnings during COVID. One of the reasons we had managers was to manage people because we assumed if we didn't manage them, they wouldn't work very hard. Uh, We went to the COVID world 
And uh, if anybody knows anyone who hasn't worked very hard for the next year, please send them to me because we've been looking for them and we haven't found them. We don't know a single company where they would say, boy, we let our people work remotely and they all goofed off. So managing people to keep them working hard is a really, really bad uh, justification. But because of it, we trapped lots of great people in middle management. We brought you into companies. If you did well, we promoted you to management. And management, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little flip here, uh, often turned into preparing re- reports to go into the recommendations to the steering committee for the spreadsheet before the quarterly budget update, right? Nobody really wants to spend their time that way. But COVID happened and we all moved to a Zoom world. You know, I don't know how about you guys, but, you know, uh, most of the folks I talk to can see either nine or 12 or 16 people on a screen. And that's all that really need to be in the meeting. Well, if you're only got nine people there, who should be there? How about the people who are doing the work and know what's going on and the people who can make big decisions? So the world really, I think, uh, took a lot of people who were stuck in very staff-like positions and moved them into being doers or deciders. And I think the world got better and everybody got happier. What is the role of talent right now and how do people manage it to be ready for this very unpredictable future, COVID or not? Diane, I think your word unpredictable is really important and it can actually govern a lot of this. As we thought about talent, I think the big theme here was was recognizing that talent is in fact a scarcer capital than financial capital, right? It used to be that you could get the talent you needed, but financial support was hard to come by. Now it's largely reversed where most organizations you talk to, what's, what's top of their list? What keeps them up at night? Do we have the talent to deliver on our strategy? to meet our customers' needs, right? And so as we think about unpredictability, there's a couple pieces. One, as you get clear on your value agenda, how do you get the right talent in the roles that matter and drive disproportionate value? And by the way, how do you get that right today? And then how do you get it right in two months or six months or a year? That's one piece. A second piece is how do you develop signature employee experiences and make sure that the experience itself is building, developing, retaining, uh, delighting your people, because this is something that matters over time. And then I think the third piece here, and Chris, I'd love your thoughts, is really getting much sharper around the HR function. And how do you build an analytical, data-driven powerhouse that's really there to deploy your, your talent, your talent engine, in the ways that matter most to your business. In too many companies, they think about talent for talent's sake. Are we a nice place to work is you know, kind of the starting question. And you know, my test for this when I meet a new client is always to ask when talent gets discussed in the executive committee or board meeting. And if the answer is at the end of the meeting, if there's time, uh, you know you're stuck in this hole. When you connect talent to that value agenda, magical things happen. The HR staff becomes the equivalent of the finance staff, except they really do control the most important asset, the human talent to get things done. They get much more demanding about having the right person in the right role, not just at the executive team, but you know, I can't tell you how often the key roles that are controlling value are N minus two, three, four in the organization. And the difference between having the right person and the wrong person can be, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of 
value. And then when you get the right people in, that's where magic really happens because those people won't put up with whatever's dysfunctional in your organization. If the processes are too slow, if decision authorities aren't right, if the culture isn't aligned, you're going to hear from those performers trying to drive performance. And if you get the value agenda and the talent thing right, it sort of forces you to resolve a bunch of other issues. I'm intrigued how talent plays into what you also write about with regard to ecosystems as a driver of growth going forward. When we talk about talent, do we need to own them or is it about having them in our orbit? Liz? I think having them in your orbit is often enough, right? You think about the rise of the gig economy, Mm -hmm. um, and certainly this has been impacted by COVID, but many, many people were choosing to work gig jobs uh, because of the increased flexibility and freedom it afforded. Organizations like uh, like Apple, for example, they don't do their own manufacturing. iPhones are huge, right? I have one. I have one right next to me, but they don't actually own that. They work with partners to do that. Owning the resources in a world where transaction costs are falling is actually no longer as important. And moreover, being able to play well with others in the sandbox and really build privileged partnerships, really learn how to how to navigate and manage the ecosystem, becomes increasingly important. COVID is a great example of showing how companies were coming together in the ecosystem. So beyond just gig economies or privileged partnerships in the supply chain and broader in the ecosystem, you know, you had public-private partnerships coming together around vaccine manufacturing and distribution, right? You had healthcare organizations and auto plants coming together to increase the the productivity or the production of, of ventilators early on, right? And so just thinking about the lowering boundaries and the importance of being able to blur boundaries really came into focus during COVID, but it has massive implications for talent and partnerships as well. Yeah, I love that, Liz. And some of the most fascinating experiments we're seeing are in this area for two reasons. One is the bigger an organization you have, the harder it is to organize it and make its culture special. Right. Uh, The more complexities you're trying to fit in, uh, the more people, the more variants you've got. So uh, if you can keep, you know, your organization small, focused and elite, the chance that your secret sauce is going to have some magic goes up. But second, there's a great organizing principle that some companies are taking advantage of, which is markets work. A fascinating company to look at is Hire, the white goods company in China. Zappos has also done something similar around disaggregating their organization into, you know, almost small sub-companies that, that work together, contracting, but treat each other more like, you know, customers, suppliers, and partners uh, who have to find a way to work together because they're trying to perform than corporate citizens who have to somehow play according to, to some rule book. Uh, there's a lot that getting that kind of market tension uh, in between units can really help. So I think we're going to see more and more experimentation around disintegration of the talent base and leverage of the ecosystem. Right. And and we've been talking about ecosystems for years. So it is interesting to think it's more about the evolution of the ecosystem now, isn't it? What is it that we've learned that, that has not worked? 
Sure. Let me start with one. We, we talked earlier about um, the decline in importance of hierarchy in uh, managing work in teams. Um, mm-hmm. That is not to say that hierarchy isn't required. Hierarchy is absolutely a functional part of organization. It's how uh, direction gets set. It's how uh, most important decisions get made. So one thing that's failed is new age self-organization. We'll all just figure this out together. Uh, I don't know of a single company that I consider wildly successful and, and deeply empowering of its employees that doesn't have uh, strong leadership. Let me ask about data. That is obviously a big factor in how companies grow. She who has the best platform wins. Liz, I'm sure it's more than that. I think it is more than that, Diane. I think there's an ecosystem element here. And certainly some of the big tech players have been enormously successful, which, which is part of why they're doing well. But I think another thing we see is that organizations are looking beyond the confines of their organization to think through the data they need, right? So you think about healthcare organizations that are thinking about data they have internally and data they have access to in the broader ecosystem. How do we amass the data we need, whether or not we own it, by the way, to help inform the decisions we make and the the moves we make, the strategy we take. Many of the challenges we see organizations facing are around processes that don't work, that don't talk to each other, data sets that don't work, don't talk to each other, people that don't work, that don't talk to each other. So how do we use platforms and technology and people to get better at having different parts of the organization really talk to each other, inform each other, build insights together? Well, I'll give give you a couple of examples there. The winners are clearly thinking about what information they want to own, and they assign value to it in advance of when they can commercialize it. And they do that by imagining customer value. I teased one client who I was close with, and I said, if our business was running Amazon, we'd have a committee debating book recommendations, right? Buy Harry Potter, it sells. (laughs) Exactly, exactly right. But second is bringing a data-centric mind. And I'll I'll give you the first place I would start, which is in uh, human talent decisions. Why do I say that? So many shout outs we should give during this, but uh, a huge one goes to Daniel Kahneman. Anybody listening to the podcast hasn't read Thinking Fast and Slow, you should. We've known for a long time that interviewing people is a terrible way to make hiring decisions. Um, It's not very accurate and it's subject to all the biases we were concerned about earlier. One of our our good friends and champions of the world, Sandy Ogg, says, you know, we spend all this money uh, trying to decide on investment decisions. And then when it comes time to talk about the people who run the asset, we talk to them for 45 minutes and say, you know what? Seem like a good guy. Yeah. You remind um, me of me at 23. Exactly. <laughs> and by the way, it, it's more often a good guy than a good gal when you do it that way, right? Making hiring decisions with data is a great place to start. We're so much better uh, off today using you know, forensic due diligence, big data online, assessment tools. And you see that in the hiring processes of, I would guess, 90% of the companies we looked at and admired. This last one fascinates me learning because my first reaction is, 
I'm from HR and I'm here to help, right? We, we, are, we are rethinking what it means to learn because um, it, it, it has a bit of a bad rep sometimes within companies. Can you talk a bit about that, Liz? When we think about learning, why does it matter, right? It doesn't matter because people spend a little bit of time each year in, in classes and coursework and, and checking boxes. It's because so many of the jobs that will exist in 2030, they literally don't exist yet. Um, and by the way, the educational institutions around us aren't necessarily fully geared up to deliver deliver those skills. So a key piece of this is really understanding what are the skills and therefore skill gaps that we're going to need to deliver on our strategy, right? And then how do we set it up internally or sometimes externally to make sure that we have those skills and capabilities in our talent when we need them? And it's an ever-moving target here. It's not just about knowing the skills you're going to need and being able to cultivate them. It's also actually being able to learn to learn, as leaders, as individuals, and as organizations, because the world is moving so, so fast that if you are really good at what you do right now, but you can't become good at something new, you're likely going to get stuck. So hiring for potential almost. What advice do you have? Thinking about the organization as a system and, and spending time designing it is a worthwhile exercise for the leadership team. If I said, well, I, I can't do everything at once, but I want to start making traction and I want to move as fast as I can, I would center on a couple of plays. One is I would think about the value agenda as though a private equity firm had just bought my company. What would we be working on if we were trying to triple our value in five years? Answering that question in a really finite way uh, with dollar values next to ideas and initiatives is a really good thing to do. The second thing I would do is I would get the best talent I can possibly put my hands on uh, next to every one of those initiatives. Because if I get great people against the right initiatives, as we said earlier, they'll force us to sort out a lot of the inelegances that are in any organization system. And lastly, I'd have a bias for speed. Mm -hmm. I would wire my company to make decisions faster unless there was a really good way not to. We all err on the side of too much staff work, too slow. It's very hard to make the error the other way. If you haven't read uh, Jeff Bezos's annual letter uh, that talks about this, it is one of the few must-reading pieces of the last decade. So that would be, that would be my third. And, and by the way, Chris, it's not just the Amazons of the world that are doing this. We looked at 30 leading U.S. companies across the 10 industries that own the most economic profit. They were doing many of the things that Chris said, but it wasn't only those things. The thing, the thing we see and the thing I'd encourage organizations to do is pick a couple of areas where you want to go big and go be bold there. Innovate, experiment, see what works and scale the stuff that does, because that is one of the ways you get crisp on what you're trying to do, who you are, how you show up, how you organize. And it also is, is ultimately what's going to allow you to build that distinctive culture, that distinctive way of organizing that's going to ultimately be helpful in the long run. That's great. Liz, I, I love that one. I, uh, I want to share two stories from the COVID world that, that have continued to inspire me. Uh, one was a, a company that had a plan, uh, and this is not a technology company. They had a plan 
uh, to go to curbside delivery. The project plan was an 18-month plan to get through the pilot. When COVID hit, they went live in two weeks. Wow. <laughs> CEO looked at me and said, I don't know if 18 months was the right plan, and I don't know if two weeks is right, but how do I think about all the other projects that are going too slow in our, our company? Uh, the second was a meeting with a mining company, a, a, you know, about as low uh, technology of business as you can get, digging stuff out of the ground. They showed me a chart that showed plant productivity relative to the amount of supervision they could get back to work. And there was a straight trend line. And I said, that's not very interesting. And they said, that's because you can't read very well, Chris. <laughs> we inverted the scale. The less supervision we had come back, the higher productivity was. What do we do about that? Um, now, listen, these were special times. There's a lot of heroics that going on, but uh, we've all got to realize that the dynamics of running companies in the 50s, 60s, and 70s aren't the dynamics today, and that there's a lot more risk from sitting still doing things the old way than there is from doing what Liz says and trying your, old, uh, your own experiments to be bold in some new ways. The words that come to mind for me is disrupt or be disrupted, I guess, would be one of the, the big takeaways here. And um, fascinating piece. So, Chris Gagnon, uh, Liz Migat, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. Thank you to you, the listener. I hope that you do check out McKinsey.com. In addition to the articles, there are some really terrific graphics that really bring this to life. I'm Diane Brady. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.